Good morning. About 20 years ago, a young friend of mine was killed in a street fight up in San Francisco. And uh, Ron Ritchie and I were asked to uh, conduct the funeral. Uh, he had ridden for a number of years with a motorcycle gang from the city, uh, kind of a clone off of the uh, Hells Angels. And uh, so all of the uh, bikers from the city were invited to this uh, funeral. Uh, we conducted the funeral at Foothill Park, which is a, a beautiful little uh, wooded area just uh, a little bit to the west, west of uh, Stanford University up in the Santa Cruz Hills in a natural amphitheater. It had a lake at the bottom. and These bikers arri arrived on their big choppers wearing their leathers and, uh, with their women sitting around the uh, area where we were conducting the funeral. And after it was over, uh, the president of one of the uh, one of the motorcycle clubs came up and thanked me for uh, what we had said. Uh, we had both talked a lot about that itch that every person feels that you cannot scratch, just that emptiness within that, that nothing will satisfy, nothing will, as, will assuage. And uh, the president of this club said to me, uh, thanked me first of all for what we, we, for what we had said, and then as he turned to leave, he, he stopped himself and he turned back and he said, you know, he said, you're right, you're right. He said, I, I've got me a putt and a pad and an old lady, but I ain't got no peace. And a putt, of course, was his uh, motorcycle and a pad was his apartment and his old lady was his uh, current uh, woman. But he said, I've got no peace. Uh, I've often thought of of that man. I, I don't know what happened to him. But it really doesn't make any difference whether we're talking about that man or, or some other person. It could be a beamer in a Sun Valley condo and a beautiful young starlet. Uh, these are not the things that, that make for peace. Uh, as some of you know, my son is a, uh, a crab fisherman up in Alaska. And uh, he called me the other day to tell me that the, he and the skipper of his boat had been having dinner together in Kodiak. And this, uh, this is a young man who's in his early 40s, uh, maybe late 30s. He's already a millionaire. He owns his own boat. And uh, he's been very successful at, at that trade. Uh, it's a very lucrative uh, occupation. And, and uh, they'd been sitting together, and I, I think this young man was fairly well lubricated. And he, he said to Josh after a while, he said, you know, Josh, he said, I own my own boat. Uh, I have fishing rights. They're very difficult to get, very expensive. They pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for these crab fishing licenses. And he says, I, I have a, a beautiful wife and a lovely family and a ranch down in uh, Louisiana, but I don't have any peace. And Josh said to me, he said, you know, Dad, you have told me that for years, that there's no satisfaction apart from God. But he said, that's the first time I've ever heard anyone admit that. Now, perhaps that's where you find yourself uh, this morning. You may have a putt and a pad and an old lady, or you may have a beautiful condo up on uh, Payette Lake and, and all the money you could possibly spend between now and, 
and the end of your life, and yet there's no satisfaction. Well, the, the text that we're going to look about look at this morning is about that issue. It, it really has to do with the way we find peace. Uh, it's Luke uh, 19, and I'm not going to take time to read the entire passage. Uh, Dwayne read at least the first part of it. I just want to remind you this is the story uh, of the so-called triumphal entry, although Luke does something a little different with this particular version than the other gospel writers. He actually does not have Jesus enter into the city. The accounts uh, stop short of the actual entrance. But uh, he does record the events that led up to that occasion and the events that came after. Uh, The first part of the passage from verses 28 uh, through 36 have to do with the actual uh, journey toward Jerusalem and then starting with verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace, peace, peace in heaven. And glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees said to to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus said, I tell you, if they kept quiet, the stones would shout. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come. When your enemies will build an embankment against you and circle you, him, you on every side, they'll dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling. It's written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a, a den, of, den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him, yet they couldn't find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. The text actually says all the people hung on him and his words. The emphasis is on the, the attraction, that wonderful attraction of Jesus. Now, uh, we've been working our way through the last part of, of Luke, and different people have been teaching different sections of of this book, and it's easy to uh, to, to lose ourselves in the forest when we're looking at the individual trees. Sometimes it's helpful to get get up above uh, the text and look down at, at what what's been happening, so that you understand the uh, the circumstances which surround this uh, any particular event in the Gospels. I need to point out again, as as others have pointed out to you, that that the message of the kingdom was by and large misunderstood. Uh, The people of that day were thinking of a political kingdom, a political entity, a a physical king located in in the capital city in Jerusalem who would chase the Romans and their political hacks like like Herod out of of Israel and would set up uh, a kingdom of, of ease and affluence right there in Jerusalem. The Republicans would be in office. There'd be a chicken in every... uh, pot a Chevy in every garage, and everything would be uh, terrific. And Jesus had to disabuse their minds of that notion. This is not what the kingdom is about. Uh, the, the other thing that, 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 the other issue 
that they couldn't quite grasp was the idea that, that we've talked about a lot, this idea that the kingdom is now and not yet. Uh, it's here. Uh, it's real. It's just as actual and substantial as any kingdom. It's the United Kingdom. But it's not yet. There, there, there's more coming. And they were thinking that the kingdom was about to come immediately. That's what triggered off that parable that Jesus told that you talked about last week, about the parable of the minas or the pounds. So there were these misconceptions. And what Jesus is doing, particularly from what we would call Luke 18, from that particular section of Luke, uh, the middle of that chapter on, he's trying to set their thinking right. Uh, he begins by taking a little child and putting this child on his lap and, and hugging the child and saying, if you want to get into the kingdom, you have to receive it like this little child's kind of perpetual childhood that Christians, that citizens of the kingdoms have, ha, kingdom have to maintain. Uh, it's not something you get. It's something that's given. Uh, you have to receive it like a little child receives things. You offer something to a child and they immediately take it. They don't have the cynicism that that we adults have. We just got back from a trip over seeing our grandchildren in Washington State. Carolyn always takes some little presents over to them. She bought these little pink horses, little horses for little girls. And uh, she gave them to our two uh, granddaughters, one's four and one's six. And, and Julia, who's four, you know, her eyes just lit up. And she said, oh, Nana, she said, that's something I've wanted my whole life, she said. <laughs> <laughs> that's the way children are. And they would turn the thing over and say, I must, did you pay for this? Or, I'd rather have a real horse. Or, <clears throat> I just, I just receive it. And that's the way we, we get into the kingdom. Nothing you can do, you just have to receive it. And then Jesus follows up with the, or Luke follows up with the story of the rich ruler, this man who came to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus said, well, you have to give away all your money and follow me. And the man said, that's impossible. And he turned around and walked off. And Jesus said, really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. As a matter of fact, it's impossible. It's like trying to stuff a camel through the eye of a needle. It's not hard. It's absolutely impossible. Disciples say, who then can be saved? Jesus said, with God all things are possible. In other words, it's not something that this man could do. It was something that God had to do to him. The disciples then said, well, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get out of the deal? Jesus said, no one, no one has, has left houses, lands, mother, father, and so forth. Who, who doesn't receive? Receive. A hundredfold in this in this life and the next. It, again, it's something God has to give you. It's not something you can grasp or get on, on your own. It's a gift. It's grace. The second thing that, that Jesus was concerned about uh, at this point was to explain that the kingdom involves a, a cross. There's no kingdom without a cross. Uh, that's That's... That's the most important thing. That's the central fact of Christianity. Gordon Clark, the Christian philosopher, says that, that is a fact on the level of the statement, water freezes. It's just a truth, like two plus two is four. 
that Christ died for our sins. Jesus said that's a matter of first importance, that he died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day. See, central to the idea of Christian faith is a cross. That's why early Christians, almost from the first century on, signed with the cross whenever over meals and whenever they met each other or, I don't know, when they scored a touchdown in the Colosseum or sacked a lion or whatever, you know, they make that. Because it meant something to him. The cross was central in their, in their thinking. As it ought to be in any, any, any aspect of, of our Christian faith. It occurred to me the other day that so many things that, that contain the name Christian aren't because they've left out the cross. They, they have political they have a political agenda or a social agenda or a personal agenda, but where's the cross? Uh, Kierkegaard tells a story of the, the uh, king of Denmark who came to a, a state church one day, and the preacher used that occasion to eulogize the king. So the next day, a wrecking crew came to the church, and they tore the cross off the front of the, of the church, and they, and they put it on the back, affixed it to the, to the back wall. So whenever the preacher got up, he would talk about the cross and, and not eulogize the king. Yeah, that, that's the central fact of, of the Christian faith is the cross. And without the cross, there is no kingdom. Uh, Luke adds, and, and it's only in Luke, the other, the other gospels don't mention it, that even Jesus' disciples didn't get it. They didn't understand any of, any of this. It wasn't until... The event actually took place. The third thing that Jesus is doing in this section is, is teaching his disciples that the kingdom is within you. He actually uses two different phrases. One, among you, that is, it's all around you, though it's invisible, and also it's, it's within you. And the way he does that is through the, that wonderful little story of Zacchaeus, this little man who crawled up into a tree to try to see Jesus. Jesus invites him to come down and invites himself over for lunch. And everybody complains that he's hanging out, that Jesus is hanging out with a sinner. And Jesus said, that's why I came, to seek and save the lost. And he leads this, uh, this scurrilous uh, little robber into a relationship with him. And the man says, I'm going to give back everything I've ripped off from others. I'm, I'm going to set things right because, you see, the change took place within the Jews of that day had everything front to back. They thought the kingdom would come and then people would change. Jesus is saying, no, no, the important thing is the people change from within. That's the first thing. You come to the cross and find forgiveness for your sins and, and, and you're set free from the burden of, of guilt and you can begin to follow the Lord and something happens within. Your hearts actually change. Then the kingdom comes. The fourth thing that Jesus wanted us his disciples to know is that to the end of this age there will be two forces at work. His enemies will be plotting against him and his citizens will be quietly working on his behalf. That's the story that, that Chris taught on last week. That story of the pounds and in which our Lord pointed out that our business is to go through the world and touch lives wherever we go because of what's been given to us. But at the same time, our Lord's enemies will be at work to undermine everything that he's doing. And those two forces will be present until the end of time. Because you see, the Jews were thinking that when the kingdom, kingdom came, all opposition would be swept away. The son of David would be enthroned on, 
on the in Jerusalem, and uh, there wouldn't be any opposition. But our Lord wanted his disciples to know that things would not be easy to the very to the very end. And then we come to the triumphal entry. Now, uh, our Lord was in Jericho, and uh, he was making his way up the Pilgrim Road, the Jericho Road, the reverse route of the uh, Good Samaritan, making his way up toward Jerusalem. And he cut off before he got to Jerusalem, and he came around in back of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is off here to the east, sort of like Table Rock Mountain uh, is east of Boise, and the city of Jerusalem was across a deep valley, the Valley of Kidron. Here's Jerusalem over here, the Mount of Olives over here. And instead of coming up the valley as they normally traveled, he went around the, the, the Mount of Olives, around the backside of the Mount of Olives. Sort of like traveling uh, from, uh, say, Banks to Boise down Highway 55. And you get to uh, Horseshoe Bend and you cut off on that gravel road that takes you around Pilot Point and down, down Bogus Basin Road so that he was coming in from the east of Jerusalem. I had to ask myself as I was reading this passage, why? Well, one easy explanation is that he, he generally stayed with Mary and Martha and Lazarus up in, in Bethany, but there's more, there's more going on here than simply finding a place to, place to stay. Because you see, from a, from a prophetic standpoint, uh, it was very clear that Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives. He would come from the east, over the Mount of Olives, down through the Kidron Valley, and into the east gate of Jerusalem. You see, our Lord is offering himself to the Jews as their Messiah at this point. And this becomes increasingly clear as we move through the story. Uh, Ezekiel, in, in, in his prophecy, saw the Shekinah, the cloud that uh, was suspended over the temple, which was the uh, picture, the sign of the presence of God. He saw that move from the sanctuary out to the threshold of the temple, well, actually down to the court and then up to the threshold, and, and it, it, almost as though it was reluctant to leave. It stayed there for a while and then went back over the, over the sanctuary, and, and then the cherubs over the ark rose from the ark, and they accompanied the cloud as it traveled back to the court, back to the threshold, down through the Kidron Valley and up to the, to the top of the Mount of Olives, and then it disappeared. That's in the first 11 chapters of, of Ezekiel. In chapter 43, the, uh, the picture is reversed. The cloud descends on the Mount of Olives, and it travels down through the Kidron and then through the east gate of the city. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, the East Gate's boarded up. Suleiman the Magnificent boarded it up, bricked it up, actually, to frustrate uh, Jewish Messianic uh, hopes. If you stand on the Mount of Olives and look down toward Jerusalem, you see the Mosque of Omar, and right under it is a, is a gate that's been bricked up. It's not the original gate. That's, that's a Turkish gate, but it was still bricked up as a symbol that the Messiah is not going to make it through that gate. But in Jesus' day, that gate was there. And you see what he was doing? He was fulfilling the prophecies of Ezekiel. He was going to walk through that gate, and, and that's precisely uh, what he did. Uh, second reason that he made that detour around to Bethany is that he had to rent a vehicle. Uh, now, you, you have to understand the significance of this donkey episode. 
Um, this is very, very important. Uh, Duane uh, read the section from Zechariah 9 in which it was prophesied that Jesus would come riding on a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal uh, of a donkey. Now, in the culture of that day, kings uh, rode in chariots pulled by stallions. Or they rode horseback uh, on, on, on big war horses. Uh, Alexander the Great had this huge horse that he called Bucephalus, ox head, wherever you see uh, statues or representations of Alexander. He's standing on this, uh, this enormous horse with a neck about that, about that thick. Uh, that's, that's the conveyance that kings use, like today. Uh, our president drives a, or rides in a stretch limo, and, and in England, the queen rides in a Rolls or a Bentley or something, some kind of limo. See, but you see what Jesus is doing? He steps out of the chariot. He gets off of his high horse, and he gets on this little ridiculous flop-eared donkey. It'd be like the president of the United States showing up in a 1964 Volkswagen with you know, the wheel wells all rusted out three or four different colors and muffler falling off and riding into town. Okay. That's precisely what, what's going on here. He says to the disciples, uh, go into the city and you find this uh, little donkey. And Matthew tells us actually there were two donkeys. There was a mother and a colt. Uh, whether he had made reservations before. I, I don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. It, it may have been his own foresight, but he directs the disciples to go in and find this little donkey. He says, say to them, it's, it's, it's master has need of it. That's interesting. Hardly any of the translations pick that up, but that's precisely what the text says. It's master has need of it. So sure enough, they go into town. Here's the little donkey and the Untether him. They start start to take him away, and and the the owners run out. They say, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! What are you doing with our donkey?" And they say, "Its master, its lord, has need of him." And so they say, "Okay." So they leave the little donkey out, and and they he doesn't even have a saddle. They just throw some clothes over his back, and Jesus hops on the back of this little donkey. He's never been ridden before, and there's something very significant in that. We'll return to that in a moment. Now, now, people were not as, not as tall then as they are today. Jesus was probably 5'8", five, 5'9", five, 5'10", something like that. But nevertheless, riding on that little yearling donkey, his feet would be dragging on the ground. There's this little ridiculous-looking, flop-eared donkey. And I think if you could have seen the Lord's face, you would have seen a twinkle in his eye. Because the whole thing is a parody, you see, on, 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 on the king, way kings normally approached. So he was fully fulfilling prophecy, but he, this is also a statement about his, his humility. Here's this gentle, gentle man who approaches in, in meekness, non-defensive character of his, of his life and humility. And when God appeared at Mount Sinai, he appeared in the form and just scared the wits out of everybody. You couldn't even touch the mountain, and, you know, you were history. Moses, the people of Israel, were frightened to death of Mount Sinai. But here on this occasion, Jesus appears in the form that no one could be afraid of. As a matter of fact, it was almost laughable. This is the king. 
Well, it was. You know, this, is the, this is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the God of the universe riding on this little sad-faced donkey. I love that picture of Aslan and that C.S. Lewis gives us of this ferocious lion and, the, and the, who purrs when the children bury their faces in his fur. They feel as he licks them with his rough tongue and they feel his warm breath on their, on their face. A lion that could have devoured them in a second and yet there's this wonderful tenderness. This is the humility of our Lord. That's why he said, come to me, all you that are me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. Learn from me because I'm meek and humble. You'll find rest for your soul. He's a God whom we can approach without, uh, without fear. So he proceeds on toward Jerusalem and the disciples get into it. They begin to chant the, fra- chant the phrase that Dwayne read to us. That's some wonderful theology in, 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 in this chant. I don't know if uh, they were aware of what they were actually saying. The angel, um, in the beginning, had said, peace on earth. The, the angel that made the announcement to the, to the shepherds said, peace on earth, goodwill, for those with whom God is well pleased. Here, you'll notice, the chant is peace in heaven. Because there can be no peace on earth until there's peace in heaven. And peace in heaven was made through the cross. That's where our Lord made atonement. Uh, We were reconciled uh, to God. Pharisees say, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to be quiet. Jesus said, listen, this is the greatest, one of the greatest occasions in the history of the world. The king has come. Uh, If I shut them up, the the rocks would sing and, and shout. Then, then he begins his descent. Now, the first part of the first movement of, of this text occurs at, at Bethany and Bethphage on the backside of the Mount of Olives, and so then he makes his way around the corner. Uh, you can picture yourself going around the side of uh, Table Rock Mountain, and uh, I've been on that road. As you as you travel around the road, the first thing you see is the southeast corner of the city of Jerusalem, and that's the, the road that's there today. Is the road that was there in Jesus' day? It's been there for eons, and it. He travels around the, uh, the south side of the Mount of Olives and he looks down upon the city and he bursts into tears. He begins to weep. It's like one of these movies, you know, where you see a flash forward and you see a burned out city. And then you see the city as it is now. Then you see the burned out city again. That's what he saw. He, he saw the temple in ruins and the city just a, a burned out hulk and a smoldering, smoldering ruin. And, and he said, oh, if you, if you just knew today the things that make for peace. What he saw was war and ruination because they did not know that God had visited them. See, those are the alternatives, peace or ruin. There's no middle way. Either we know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and submit to his leadership or the, and lordship or, or the alternative is slow death and ultimate ruin. And he was right. Forty years later, Vespasian, who was tired of the Jews and their insurrection, the little guerrilla warfare that was being carried out all over Jerusalem, he sent Titus, General Titus, to Jerusalem. They built a ramp as 
exactly as Jesus predicted against the side of the city. They, they held out for a number of months, one of the really sad periods of Israel's history where they turned to cannibalism. It was horrible. And eventually they, they breached the walls, broke into the city. Titus tried to spare the temple. He did not want his soldiers to destroy the temple. The Jews ran into the temple to try to uh, find sanctuary there. And the soldiers broke into the, into the temple in, uh, court and burned the temple. The, gold, uh, the temple at that time was overlaid with gold and silver. And the, these precious metals flowed down in between the rocks. And the soldiers used their swords to pry them apart. As Jesus said, not one stone will be standing on, on another. They pried the stones apart, peeled off the, the gold, and, and the temple was just left uh, a burning hawk. That's the alternative. Either we find rest or ruin. There are no other options. That's what wrung out of our Lord, this, this, this terrible cry of agony. Oh, you just knew the things that make for peace today, he says. Something very significant about that word today. It's emphasized in the, in the text in various ways, and there's a reason. Uh, in the latter part of the 19th century, there was a young uh, Irish uh, uh, barrister, lawyer, by the name of Sir Robert Anderson, who uh, for a time was the commissioner of, of the uh, Scotland Yard. And uh, he came across that phrase, this day, in it intrigued him, and with his uh, fine legal mind, analytical mind, he began to research the scriptures, and he came across a passage in, in Daniel 9. Uh, Daniel had been asking the Lord about the significance of the 70 years that had been decreed, 70 years of destruction that had been decreed for, for Jerusalem. And he was given this fairly elaborate prophetic scheme right down in a series of numbers that, that told him what uh, the future held. It goes like this. This is, if you want to check it out on your own, it's Daniel 9, 24 and following. 77, that is 480 years, are decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. In other words, 490 years before God's redemptive program is wrapped up. And he says, No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens, which adds up to a total of 483 years. Now, here's what Sir Robert Anderson discovered. The date at which this particular prediction began is 445 B.C. Daniel was told that from the decree, that when the decree to rebuild Jerusalem went forth, from that point on, it would be 483 years before Messiah would come. Anderson discovered that that particular decree was rendered by Artaxerxes uh, I during his 20th year, which would be 445 B.C. So 483 years after that decree, Messiah would come uh, to Jerusalem. Well, Anderson knew that uh, the Persians uh, had a different calendar. They had a 360-day calendar, solar calendar. So he translated that into Julian years or, or Gregorian years as our, as our uh, calendar is today. 
And it came out 476 years. So 445, and you add 400, uh, 476 years to that, and you come out to April A.D. 32. Now, we don't know all of the exact dates, but it's close enough so that if we knew precisely the date on which that that decree was given, that is the actual calendar date, it would work out exactly to 476 years. Now, if Sir Robert Anderson in the 19th century could figure all that out, certainly the Jews of Jesus' day knew. And that's why Jesus said, all that you knew today, today, the things that, that bring peace, they should have known. He says later in this passage, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God came to visit, and they didn't know it. Now, the last part of this section, which we'll just take a minute to look at, is the story of the cleansing of the temple. Luke uh, actually shortens the, the, the account. According to the other gospel writers, Jesus came into the uh, temple that first day after the triumphal entry and wandered around and, and looked at all the at everything that was going on in the temple and went back to Bethany and he came back the next day and cleansed the temple. But Luke pushes that event up to this day, leaves out the preliminary inspection. Our Lord came to his temple and he saw what they were doing. He checked out the heart of the nation. He realized that for them character was irrelevant. What mattered was ease and, and affluence and the economy and money and trading and economics. These were the things that, that mattered. And he drove the money changers out of the, king, uh, out of the uh, temple. He said this house was meant to be a house of prayer. This was a, pl- a house of prayer for all nations. So the Gentiles could come and hear the gospel, hear the good news of the kingdom. And they were coming and they were just being ripped off and sold out. And so Jesus drove the money changers out of the, out of the kingdom and then he began to teach. Oh, I would have loved to have been in on those teaching sessions. I have no idea what he did. But he must have talked about what the kingdom was and pointed out once more that he was the king and on what basis they could become citizens of the kingdom. We're told that the common people were hanging on every word, but the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and even the political leaders of the people, who until this point had not been involved at all in the opposition, turned against him. And you have to remember that this crowd who sat at his feet and listened to him, many of these people were the ones who later said, when he was, uh, when, when, when Pilate... Uh, brought him out and crowned him with a crown of thorns and put a robe on his back and said, Behold your king. They said, We have no king but Caesar. And 40 years later, Titus and the Roman legions sacked and burned and leveled the city of of Jerusalem. Now, now our Lord would say to us what he said on that that day when, when he sat on that little donkey and he looked down toward Jerusalem and the tears were streaming down his, his face and he said, all oh, that today you knew the things that, that make for peace. Uh, there is no ultimate peace in things and in money and in affluence and even in family and children and in acquisition, collection, 
travel, all the things that we normally find a great deal of satisfaction in. There is a momentary joy, but it, but it fades. The only true, lasting satisfaction comes from making Christ Lord in our life. There's a man by the name of George Herbert, Herbert who writes a poetry that is very profound, but at the same time very difficult to understand and very hard to read. I never try to read it publicly because people don't have an idea what he's talking about. But there's one poem which he's written called The Pulley in which he describes the creation of man. He says when, when man and woman were first made, God had a, a, a glass of blessing, as he called it, a number of things that he wanted to bestow on the human race. And then he, he describes those things, riches, listen, beauty, and wisdom, and honor, and pleasure. He says, when almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that alone of all his treasure rest at the bottom lay. In other words, as he began to dispense the, the goodies out of this, uh, out of this glass, beauty and, and, uh, and wealth and, and, and power and influence and success, academic success, athletic success, uh, the good things of life he began to bestow. And at the very bottom, rest was left, and, and, and he didn't give that. He didn't give that. For if I should, he said, they would adore my gifts instead of me. So, he says, let him keep the rest. That is the human race. Let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. See, that's the 18th century equivalent of the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction, though I've tried and tried and tried. Because God, while he gave many good things to us, did not give us rest, because rest is found only in God. And it's that itch that we can't scratch, that restlessness within that keeps us turning back to our Lord to discover that profound sense of peace that only he can, can give. I said I would return to that story of the little, little donkey because for me that's very significant. Uh, I was raised around horses. I, my uh, father, my grandfather raised horses. My father did. My sister still does. Uh, there was no love lost between me and horses. Um, for me as a kid growing up, they were just a whole lot of work. But I tell you one thing I learned about horses and all other livestock. You know, about mules, donkeys, we had them all. You do not leap on the back of a yearling colt without a without a saddle, without landing on the ground. Uh, isn't it interesting? And, and, and almost all the gospel writers underscore the fact that this was a little colt that had never been ridden, yearling donkey. Anybody else jumping on the back of that colt would have landed on the ground. This little colt recognized his master. See, that's why Luke says, its Lord needs it. You know, donkeys in the Bible come off much brighter than people. <laughs> they do. Uh, Balaam's little donkey saw things that Balaam didn't see. You know, he saw the angel. 
Balaam was wailing on the little donkey trying to get it to pass. And he could see the angel. I mean, what's with this fool on my back? Can't he see this angel? This little donkey was much wiser than we are. Our Lord comes to us and he says, I have need of you. And we don't want him. He weeps over us because he sees the ruin ahead, the slow dying, certain death. It's ours, the emptiness, the loss of that sense of, of meaning that's so important to us, the boredom, the frustration, the futility that sets into our lives when we will have no king but, but Caesar. C.S. Lewis has a little poem that goes like this. Among the asses, stubborn I as they, I see my Savior where I look for hay. So may my beast-like folly learn at least the submission of that beast. That's what this passage teaches us. Rest comes from that beast-like submission to Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a one-time thing. It's something that we do in the very beginning when we acknowledge His Lordship, and it's an everyday thing. It's something we do every day as we arise and thank Him again that He's Lord of our life. And it's in that, it's the recognition of His kingship in our life that we find that sense of satisfaction that we're looking for. I see men uh, reaching the 40s and acting as though they've been dropped on their heads from a great height, you know, trying to revert to childhood and act like they are in their 20s again. We call it the 40-year itch, whatever, however you want to describe it. I see women, once the nest is empty, going out to get a job or to do something to fill up that, that lack they have in their life. Not that there's anything wrong with getting a job, but, but your work will no more fulfill you than men's work if fulfill them in the very beginning. There's no satisfaction apart from Christ, period. Well, let's pray. Lord, give us the submission of that little beast to know that you are our Lord and our Master. We ask in Jesus' name.